We'll come to a time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage, in this case, two passages from God's Word, and we're going to talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn, first of all, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. This is the uh, home base that we're going to be working from in this series, In the Fullness of Time. And then if you have a Connect card or an offering envelope, if you want to stick it in Luke 2, that's where we're going to camp out today, which is on page 724, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. When you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read this passage together, starting with the Galatians passage. So again, this is the foundation passage for this series in the fullness of time. Paul writes, Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the time had fully come... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now flip over to Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Luke writes this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. Now, if you're not familiar with the Christmas story, there's too much to explain there, but Mary is at this time pregnant with Jesus, brought about not because of Joseph, but because of the Holy Spirit who's come upon her. She's now carrying this Christ child in her. And it says they're pledged to be married, but most commentators agree they are actually already married here, but because they have not consummated the marriage, that she's still referred to as the one who is pledged to him. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, that's normal, lying in a manger. That's not normal. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to man on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's particular blessing on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we believe you have already been present with us this morning as your church gathers here in this place. And we trust you now in the preaching of your word that you would speak through this to our hearts and apply it to our hearts in just the way we need it. You know particularly what each one of those needs are in each one of us. And so I'm just trusting that you're going to do that in each one of us the way we need it. You say in your word, when you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one here today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, for as long as the concept has been identifiable to us, mankind has sought to understand our relationship to time. So from sundials and hourglasses to cell phones and atomic clocks, uh, to from, uh, you've got Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler uh, studying the Earth's rotation and how that works. You've got Stephen Hawking discovering black holes and arrows of time. You've got a 10-year-old boy uh, dismantling the family clock, trying to figure out how time works. Uh, all these things together, we've, we've sought over the course of human history with sustained curiosity and increasing specificity to understand the nature of time and how we relate to it as human beings. But although there's a vast number of different avenues of inquiry and discussion that we could explore as it relates to this subject, as we begin this new teaching series this morning that's going to take us through the weeks leading up to Christmas, entitled, In the Fullness of Time, We're going to be working directly from that passage in Galatians 4 that we read, kind of as our home base, if you will, which gives us insight into the question of how it is that God relates to and works within our finite human understanding of time. How does God relate to our understanding of time? But of course, even that is probably still too broad a subject to cover in five weeks. So if we could narrow the discussion down even further, as it relates to that passage in Galatians, one question that could probably help narrow the focus even further form our discussion is this. How does our understanding of what it means to be on time relate to God's understanding? How does our understanding of what it means to be on time relate to God's understanding? Which I think even on its own is an interesting question to think about because if you were to just take a husband and wife a parent and their child, a a boss and an employee, and line them up beside one another, even there, you're likely to encounter vastly different definitions of what on time means. And if that's the case even amongst us, well then how much more difficult is it going to be to understand from a divine perspective what the difference is? Well, I think one of the ways the Bible in general, and that passage in Galatians 4 particularly, Help us to answer the question of how our understanding of being on time to God's is in the way it presents God as both the creator of and ruler over time. That's the Bible's presentation to us of how God relates to time. He is the creator of time and he is ruler over time. Now, you can dispute whether or not you think that's a true statement, um, but from a biblical perspective, which it shouldn't surprise you to hear we're operating under in the church, from a biblical perspective, if God is both the author of and authority over time, that is, time serves Him and not the other way around, 
then just the same way as when a professor tells you that term paper is due at the end of class this coming Friday, or when your wife tells you the baby's coming now, it doesn't really matter, actually, whether or not you agree with God's definition of on time. If he says this is exactly when an event should take place, if it's happening right now, this is on time, and that means that, well, we're the ones who need to adjust our definition, not him. Which is hard for most of us to accept, right? Uh, all kinds of different ways. It's hard to accept, not simply because it's goading to our pride, but also because, as I mentioned, we deal with competing definitions of on time almost every day. Is this just one more? And yet what's entirely unique about God's definition is that because he sits outside of time, because he's able to look over and see the entire sweep of, of time and history from its beginning when he started it, he can see all the way to the end when our human understanding of, of time ends. He can see it all in a way that no finite person ever could. What it means is that his definition of on time, that's the one that's actually right. He could see the perspective that none of us ever could. And so his definition of on time is actually right. So it's hard, but, but what's comforting for us as we try to get our minds around this is that we see in the Bible, people actually wrestle with this exact same question too. All kinds of places where people are like, what are you doing? This is wrong. They're mad at God. They're upset with Jesus. All kinds, everything from the people of Israel taking 40 years to make a trip that should have taken them two weeks to Jesus showing up four days after his friend Lazarus had already died. People are mad. They're like, your timing sucks. It's wrong. All kinds of situations people are asking. It's where God's timing appears to be terribly wrong, only to prove later to be exactly right. And as it relates to that passage in Galatians, what the Apostle Paul seems to clearly be communicating there is that According to God, the fulfillment of his promise to send Jesus somewhere around 2,000 years ago was exactly on time. Jesus' arrival somewhere around 2,000 years ago was exactly on time. But listen, even though the promise to send him was made thousands of years previous to that. So how does that work? That sounds terribly wrong, doesn't it? That sounds like the kind of promises our older siblings usually make to us thousands of years after you've made the promise you finally follow through and that's on time really and yet that's the language galatians 4 uses referring to jesus coming which we celebrate every christmas it happened in the fullness of time when the time had fully come that's when god sent his son in the original greek it has this idea of a container in this sense, time being fully filled up to capacity. And then at that moment when it's fully filled, that's the time has now been filled and it's ready to go. But the, the, the relevance of that to us, the, the transforming hope, and what I pray all of us will take away from this series is that in accepting God's definition of on time that he's revealed to us in his word, when we accept God's definition as superior, as more accurate than your own, it then begins to completely transform the way we view everything. 
It begins to transform and, and recategorize every time in your life or in the life of a loved one when you've accused God of not being on time. And we begin to accept his definition of what on time means. And in order to help us begin to understand and grasp this, I want to look together at one of the descriptions of God's perfect on-time sinning of Jesus that we have in Luke chapter 2. Because uh, as we look through this account, I think we're given at least three insights into how our understanding of time relates to God's understanding. Because what we're shown there is that the coming of Jesus doesn't happen when, it doesn't happen how, it doesn't happen in the way that likely any of us would have chosen. Like seriously, think about the fact, even the, the promise of his coming, thousands of years before, and then all of a sudden now it's coming and that's on time. It's like God's people all these years have been stuck in the backseat of the proverbial family car saying, are we there yet? And yet here, he's arriving, and it's said to be, that's the fullness of time. That's when it's supposed to happen. So in order to help us redefine our understanding of on time and see it like God does, I want to look at three things from this passage in Luke. We're going to look at God's unexpected timing, God's unmistakable time, and then finally, God's unconventional timetable. Those three things, God's unexpected timing, unmistakable time unconventional timetable. So if you closed your Bibles or you're still over in Galatians, flip over to that passage in Luke chapter 2. Open it up with me. Follow along. As we look at this first part of the Christmas story according to Galatians, where we see God sending his son in the fullness of time. Okay, so let's look first of all at God's unexpected timing. God's unexpected timing. Now if you don't no, I, I, maybe you've never paid much attention to these things like movie releases. I don't know if you follow this. I kind of have made a little bit of a study of this. So if you follow, say, the way that Avengers movies are released, there's a little bit of an expected timing to how they're released. Have you noticed this? There's almost always a bonus scene at the end of the previous film. After all the credits run, there's a bonus scene that kind of gives you this like, hey, there's another movie coming. Gives you like, there's, there's more to this story, kind of build hype, build excitement. And then for the next months, maybe even a year, there's little teaser trailers, print ads, just to kind of keep the movie in your mind. They then release the full HD trailer. That's the good one, which really, okay, this is actually happening. And then culminating at last in the red carpet, movie premiere, all the stars show up, limos and tuxes, when the movie is at last unveiled and released for all to see. That's the general timetable of Avengers movie releases. It's not exactly the same, no, but on a much larger scale, this is very similar to what you see God doing over the course of history. They, they, that means Stanley ripped this off from God. If you think back, for instance, at the Bible's description of the creation of the world and everything in it, in that moment when mankind rebels against God and, and all creation becomes curved inward on itself, God makes a promise. Genesis 3.15, that he's going to send a rescuer. He's going to send a rescuer, the seed of the woman, who's going to come and make war with the serpent, break the power of sin's curse over his creation. Okay, that's like the bonus scene. Okay, that's the bonus scene in the Bible where God is essentially promising, I know things look really, really bad right now, but this isn't the end of the story. There's, there's more coming. I'm sending something, help is. 
And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's all kinds of different teasers to kind of keep this promised rescuer in the minds of people, as well as a progressive revelation of what he's going to look like when he shows up. So they'll know what to look for when he arrives. But what makes God's timing radically different uh, from the expected predictable timing of Avengers movie releases is that there, production companies give distributors specific release date so that they can let people who are waiting for the next movie to be released know when they should expect it to happen. That's how those movies do this, but not so with God. He, he doesn't seem concerned about that at all. He does promise a rescuer is coming, but then he gives no indication whatsoever as to when that's going to be. So, for example, people are seem to be confused about this. When, when, when Eve gives birth to her firstborn son, Cain, there's good evidence to believe she thinks he's the promised rescuer. She's like, okay, that was fast. Great. Uh, if you know the story of Cain, not so much. He didn't turn out to be uh, the promised rescuer. Uh, he turned out to be a murderer. Um, by the time you get to the New Testament, people are still searching around. Who, who is this? Is, when, they, when John the Baptist shows up, they're saying, are you the promised one? No, I'm not. Uh, John the Baptist sends word to Jesus. Are you the promised rescuer or should be waiting for someone else? It's still in the mind of people. They're still waiting for this to happen. But my point in all of this is that, first of all, God's timing is not following any kind of expected plan, at least not as far as his people can discern it. It seems like completely random. But what it also means is that when we get to this passage in Luke 2, what these shepherds watching their flocks in the field at night are not doing is staring expectantly up into the sky saying, Ooh, I wonder if God's going to reveal his promised rescuer tonight. That's not what they're doing. And in fact, no one's doing that. They still believe the promised rescuer is coming, but nobody believes they're going to see it happen. They've waited for so long. Which I think, beyond the fearful surprise of a sky full of angels suddenly appearing in verse 9, is also the reason for the immediate, just reckless response of the shepherds. Once the angels have left, they just leave their flocks and run off to see this baby there in verse 16. I think that's one of the reasons for this overwhelming response to the angel announcements because just to keep this analogy going it's as though the shepherds have been out in the field just watching teaser trailers on their iphones and now suddenly they're given full access vip passes to the red carpet unveiling of the big show it's happening today in bethlehem and they just got vip all access passes they're taken out they're going someone came to you as you're waiting around for the avengers and said here's tickets to go see Robert Downey Jr. and the whole cast, big unveiling. You'd, be, you'd drop everything. I'd forget to pick up my kids. would go and be like, what? Maybe not. Either way. But rather than kind of focusing in and, and looking specifically at the excitement of the shepherds, what we can't lose sight of in the midst of this is what Paul told us there in Galatians 4. That although this oppressed Roman-occupied people had all but given up hope, that this day was ever going to arrive because they'd waited so long for God to fulfill his promise. Jesus, the promised son, was precisely on time according to God's Google calendar. He didn't get a reminder and just say, oh, I forgot I was supposed to send. I didn't push send. There we go. Sorry, guys. Thousands of years later. 
No, this was exactly on time when the moment, the time had sufficiently filled up for God to fulfill his promise. And in light of that reality, I wonder how many of us here this morning, you could say that you either have identified or do currently identify with maybe just how the shepherds particularly felt pre-angelic message in your own life. Or maybe you felt like you had a clear promise from God, from his word, that he was going to protect you, that he was going to provide in some way, that he was going to give you sustaining grace to endure some kind of hardship, that he was going to, he'd given you some direction that he wanted you to go, but then timing didn't happen at all like you expected, didn't work out the way that you thought it would, and now you feel foolish, disappointed, disillusioned, angry, like God's let you down. And maybe he's never going to come through. My prayer for you is if that's where you're at today, and I'll tell you that's a place that I've been so many times in my life. If that's where you're at today, my prayer, first of all, is that the example from this story might begin to shine light into that darkness, into that frustration, into that disappointment. Begin to help recalibrate your understanding of what God being on time looks like. And no, not meaning that you might have to wait thousands of years for God to show up. You just got to be cool with that. No, meaning to acknowledge in those moments of disappointment, of embarrassment, whatever it is, that if God's view of and control over time and history is so much infinitely higher than anything I could ever have in my own mind, my own finite humanity, then maybe, just maybe, just because God didn't show up when or in the way I expected him to doesn't have to mean for a second that God was not on time. God says through his prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than yours. Maybe he hasn't forgotten you. Maybe his truly perfect timing for you is simply not filled up yet. And it's still coming. It's hard in those moments, I know, It's hard to accept that when we're feeling the pressure, we're feeling the weight, we're feeling the sadness of waiting. And yet, as Tim Keller once said so well, if you say, I believed in God, I trusted God, and he didn't come through, you really only trusted him to meet your agenda. You need to trust that his view of time, his view of on time, really is more accurate than ours. He does know better. Okay, so that's God's unexpected timing. Again, if God is truly God, we should expect more often than not that his timing will not look like ours. But if he's truly good, then we can expect that his timing for us is perfect and it is ultimately going to be better than if we planned it. Let's look next now at God's unmistakable time. God's unmistakable time. Now, what I'm referring to here is the angelic announcement in particular that we're shown in verses 10 through 14. Look with me there. 
Because what the angels proclaim to the shepherds gives clear evidence of what Paul said in Galatians 4. Namely, that this is indeed the fullness of time and that this baby born in Bethlehem truly is the son that God had sent. So look at verse 10 with me. Angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That word good news is the word gospel. It's the euangelion. I bring you a gospel of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, then a great company of heavenly hosts appeared. This is actually the language of an army, not a choir. An army of angels shows up, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, there's a lot, a lot going on here in this announcement, but two things in particular I want to point out and highlight. First of all, the fullness of time part we see at the beginning of verse 11. Look there. For, for this good news of great joy, this gospel of great joy that the heavenly messenger is bringing declares today. That word is so important. Today, right now, is the appointed time. This is it. This is when it's coming. This is when God's time has reached its fullness and the promised rescuer has come, which means God is wanting to make this fulfillment of his promise unmistakably clear. He doesn't want any questions or doubt. Is this the one? He's trying to make it as clear as possible so there'll be no doubt or question in anyone's mind. But in the second half of verse 11 is where God also makes the identity of this baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger unmistakably clear as well. He's revealing that this is not just any baby that's born on this day when the time had fully come. This is God's Son sent to earth. Now, we'll look more deeply in the coming weeks as to what the purpose of sending His Son was, but for the moment, what you need to see is that what's being made unmistakably clear is the identity of this child. He is a Savior. He is Christ, and He is the Lord. That's the description of this baby that's shown up. Let's look just briefly at each of those titles to just understand it a little bit more deeply. First of all, Christ. The Greek Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, both words meaning anointed one, which would have had both kingly significance, that's how kings were set apart, they were anointed, but also a priestly significance. This is the role of a, of a priest and that he would carry out as an anointed one, but it also had particular reference to that promised rescuer who was coming, the Messiah, the Christ. This was a specific role, it's not Jesus' last name, it's a title. He is Christ, Savior. Unto you is born this day a Savior, which means pretty much what we understand it to mean in English. He's one who's going to save. He's one who's going to rescue, which just reinforces this idea that this is the promised rescuer who has come. And then finally, Lord, the Greek kurios. As R.C. Sproul notes, is regularly used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for God's own name, Yahweh which when taken all together brings unmistakable clarity that this is indeed the time when God's promise is at last being fulfilled. As theologian G.K. Beale notes, the Savior and Messiah or Christ is one who delivers God's people, while the Lord is one to be obeyed 
and honored. And these are the titles all coming together of this is the Son who was sent. He is a Savior. He is Christ. And He is also Lord. And while I don't think you can responsibly conclude from this description that God is always going to make His timing unmistakably clear like this, uh, that certainly hasn't been my experience uh, that He regularly does that, nor do I hear other people say this. But what I think you can conclude undeniably is that God has gone to a huge effort, a great deal of effort in this instance in particular to make the fulfillment of his promise along with the goal of his timing unmistakably clear. He's wanted to make sure we don't miss this. This is my promised rescuer. God is filling up the night sky with angels to proclaim. And the filling up of the time necessary for me to send him is now complete today, right now. A Savior has been born to you, and he is exactly on time. Okay, so we've looked at God's unexpected timing, his unmistakable time. Last thing I want to look at together with you is God's unconventional timetable. God's unconventional timetable. And I'm praying this last part is also going to be really helpful to many of us this morning. And the reason I think it's so helpful is because it challenges our understanding not only of when God's timing is perfectly carried out, but also how, the way in which it's perfectly carried out. That's something that I think we struggle to rightly discern all the time as well, although we usually (laughs) state it quite differently. Oh, I know, I know how this should be. This shows us the way God carries out his perfect timing is also unique to us. Now, even saying all that, I think it could be confidently said, as you consider the details of this story in Luke 2, that God's timetable for the fulfillment of his promise to make it unmistakably clear is unquestionably unconventional. He's not doing this either according to the timing we would choose or the way that we would choose to carry it out either. It is unconventional. So if you look, first of all, at verses 1 through 7 of this passage that lead, uh, we talk about Mary and Joseph uh, arriving in Bethlehem. If you just look at those details, completely unconventional. They're traveling, uh, sources tell us, over 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that's Joseph's ancestral home, to be registered for this Roman census. But just think about that. Think about the time period they're in. This is no SUV with heated seats and DVD player. There's no drive-thrus to go through. They don't have the midwife on speed dial. Mary's nine months pregnant, ready to pop at any minute. And when they get to Bethlehem, there's no place for them to stay. Reservation lost, who knows what. There's nowhere for them to stay, so the baby has to be born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough for animals. Like you don't need a calculator to figure out this is not the right time for people to be traveling. It's totally wrong. I guarantee if you're a husband and you ever make travel plans like this for your wife when she's nine months pregnant, she's going to be referring to it long after the kids leave for university. (laughs) It's going to go very bad for you. But then look at the guest list. Look at the, the guest list with a big red carpet reveal that takes place in verses 8 through 20. Who's, who's on the list again? Shepherds. That's the only name on the list. Shepherds, which I know we get this cute picture in our mind because Christmas cards, they look so nice, or children's Christmas pageants, the tea towels on their head, it's so cute. 
and nice. But what we forget, I, I mentioned this in years past, these guys were just above tax collectors and lepers when it came to acceptable members of Jewish society. They lived out in the fields with their sheep, which has a whole connotation of how they looked and smelled. They were ceremonially unclean because of their profession, so they were excluded from temple worship. And they were notorious thieves and liars and could not even be relied on to give testimony in court. These are the handful of dudes that the big reveal comes to. Here you go. And then, out in the middle of a field where nobody else can even see it. Like I bet you even once they figured out what was going on, the shepherds themselves were probably just looking up at the angels like, sure you've got the right address in your phone here? Totally looks dumb, totally looks wrong. But my point in all of this is that from our perspective, as we read this, not only does God's timing look wrong, his timetable looks wrong as well. In fact, it doesn't just look wrong. It looks foolish. It looks reckless. It looks wasteful. Like nobody took the time to just sit down with God and just go over with him how you actually promote a big event or how it is, like how hard it is to travel during pregnancy, let alone in this historical time period, it's like they didn't know. And yet, I want us just to stop here for a second. I want us to really sit in that feeling of how wrong this looks. Maybe just feel the, how dumb, how, how differently we would have done it if we'd planned it. Because here's the thing, you only need to live long enough and you will feel exactly this same way about the circumstances of your own life. And not just once, multiple times you're going to feel exactly like that as it relates to the circumstances in your own life. Maybe some of you sitting here this morning, that's how you're feeling right now. You're looking at the circumstances of your life and you're thinking, this is so dumb. What are, you, are you even in control, God? What are you doing? Why did you let this happen? Why hasn't this happened? So many questions. But then let me ask you something. I'm not going to comment on whatever circumstances you've had to walk through or I've had to walk through in my own life. But as bungled, as foolish, as missable, as God's big reveal timetable looks on paper to us, what was the result that it brought about? Considering the fact that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this birthday and this birth. It seems like it still worked out. It still accomplished exactly what he wanted it to in the way he wanted it to. And if that's what on time looks like to God in these circumstances, then maybe in the same way our understanding of perfect timing needs to be adjusted and recalibrated when we consider God's superior vision of time in history to ours. Maybe, maybe our understanding of our present circumstances needs to be recalibrated as well as we consider God's superior ability to plan. Did the circumstances look dumb? Yeah. Did God accomplish exactly what he needed to? Did he know better? Yeah. So you see what I mean? It should change the way we look at everything. It should change the way we see everything when we understand what God's on time looks like 
problem is, in the end, for most of us, even those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, Christ, and Lord, is that we still so often get stuck in our own limited, finite view of things and fail to consider things from the perspective revealed to us in God's Word. To remember that the vantage point from which God views all time and history is infinitely higher than ours. And not only does He see it all, He also sits as Lord over it all. So we'll plan something from our own limited perspective. It doesn't work out and we say, oh, well, I guess it's too late. Or, or, or we'll look at the circumstances we're living in. We'll look at the resources we have, the abilities that we have, and we'll just say, no, it simply can't be done. Not possible. And yet, what Luke 2 alone reveals to us, along with countless other scriptures, is that what looks like too late to us can still be exactly on time for God. What looks like unconventional, what looks like unable, what looks like unworthy to us is still easily enough for God to carry out His perfect purposes exactly on time as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read these words, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Which is one of the clearest evidences I know of, of why God's understanding of on time is so superior to ours. Because what we're reminded of now here is that God's understanding of on time as it relates to His coming again. Now as we look ahead to that, His coming again and His understanding of what on time will be there, which again will be unexpected and also unmistakably clear. His understanding of on time is the thing that allowed us to actually come to meet Jesus ourselves. And it's also the thing that gives time to those who have not yet heard or those who are currently rejecting Jesus to come to repentance too. So his timing is right, although it seems like it's taking forever. Although it seems wrong, his timing is perfect. For as Paul tells us in Romans 5, it was also God's unconventional timetable of when he sent Jesus to die, namely, when we were the most unworthy. When we were the most unable, the most unclean, when it made no sense at all for him to do that. That that's when he said it was on time to send Jesus. That's the reason that any of us are able to know him as our Savior today at all. Amen. Amen.